afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Bedri Youssef and Dr. Allison Rupp. Dr. Youssef is one of the senior leadership team members at the Northeast Georgia Health System, and he currently serves as the chief physician executive for the Northeast Georgia Physicians Group. Dr. Ruck was born and raised in Merdita, Mexico and moved to the U.S. in 2005. She speaks both Spanish and English fluently. She attended the University of Tennessee where she received a degree in biochemistry, cellular and molecular biology with a minor in philosophy. She worked for a year at the Peachford Hospital in Atlanta, the largest psychiatric private hospital in Georgia, and from there pursued a medical school or went to medical school at the University of Georgia campus, MCG. Dr. Ruck completed her emergency medicine specialty at Wake Forest. She also moonlighted at a small hospital in the North Carolina mountains in the last half of her training. Dr. Ruck is currently teaching internal medicine, family medicine, and medical students during their emergency medicine rotation. Dr. Ruck is a strong advocate for MAT in opioid use disorder and obtaining PACE accreditation. She is also involved in the ongoing efforts to optimize pain and addiction treatment in all of the Northeast Georgia Health System emergency departments. Join me in welcoming both Dr. Yusuf and Dr. Ruck. Uh, thank you, Jennifer, for that introduction. And um, I want to thank, first of all, welcome. Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody, to our series of lectures on opioid management. I want to thank first uh, Dr. Janine Walker and uh, Jennifer Reagan and the entire CME staff and the physicians who have agreed on a very short notice to meet our needs for our medical staff. I want to assure you and to let you know anytime there is a state, federal, or regulatory requirement for your medical license or your DEA or any other things, the healthcare system, the medical staff, in collaboration with our CME department, will cover those. So if you have any particular interest of any field that we need to cover, please let us know. We want to be proactive and serve all of you. The ob objectives, uh, you are for a good treat uh, because we have a lot of interesting areas covered for this opioid uh, treatment. We have from critical care, from ambulatory basic management, pharmacokinetics, maternal health, and uh, addiction and all that will be covered in this 10-module exercise. Um, why do we cover this topic? Why now and why are we talking about this? The impact of opioid epidemics in this country is tremendous. We have more than $11 billion with B expenditure, about $2 billion alone in annual hospital costs. And the readmission rate for this patient is almost double than the natural average rate between 16 to 17% where the usual readmission rate is. And this is way higher than that. And it's an international crisis. When I reviewed these, I was surprised to learn we were not alone. Australia is number two in this crisis. Uh, this is number of drug-related deaths per million. And uh, so-called happy countries like Iceland, Sweden, New Zealand, and Finland, where everybody wants to immigrate, they are not immune from this as well. 
One surprising fact about opioid crisis is since the, op the COVID epidemics, it has tremendously increased, uh, about 31, 30 to 31% increase in opioid-related deaths. And this is the map since 2019-20 covering about 40%, 40 of the uh, 50 states noticed the big jump in opioid-related deaths. And Connecticut being the lowest, uh, they saw about 12% increase and Mississippi about 55% increase in opioid-related days. We can discuss the reason behind it, and this is the curve that's related. It used to increase up to 16%, this opioid-related deaths and this epidemic. So that's why it's called twindemic, basically. And during the, the, the COVID crisis time, it has increased to 42%. And the total deaths, but, uh, from opioid is as high as now 80,000 and male, males tend to be impacted more than females. If you look in a little bit detail, the total drug overdose in general has increased almost to 30% and more than 75% of drug overdose related deaths come from opioid overdose with the exception of heroin that has shown a slight decline in every area, including synthetic opioid, uh, opioid overdose has increased. This has a lot to do with fentanyl-laced drugs, including OxyContin and other street, uh, street drugs. What surprised me is about 50,000 Americans used heroin for the first time. That was a shocker for me. That's, uh, I consider that a very high number. And 1.6 million people misused uh, uh, prescription opioid. In the rise of opioid days in this country, there were three spikes, if you will, three waves. The first one started in 1999, and a lot of people attribute that uh, with the, use, with the uh, introduction of OxyContin, and also the pain scale with the smiley faces. And as that start to increase, especially in rural America and in a lot of parts of the country, heroin use start to rise in around 2010, that was the second wave. And recently, most of the deaths come from fentanyl-laced uh, synthetic uh, street drugs and uh, OxyContin and all this prescription medication. So what people buy on the street has some fentanyl in it and mainly car fentanyl actually and causes a lot of deaths. So the background for this, for all of you, why are we doing this? Um, the Medication Access and Training Expansion Act, which is called the MET Act, was introduced in March of uh, 2021 by Representative Lori Terhan. She is the Congresswoman from Massachusetts. When that was introduced and in a bipartisan way, it got uh, passed in uh, 2023 with the Consolidated Appropriations Act. And during that time, the DEA as the enforcing agency put this rule for all physicians who are renewing or getting a new DEA license starting from June 27 to have a one-time eight hours of training related to opioids. They didn't specifically prescribe or 
describe what it has to be, but you have to have this one-time uh, training. So you need to have that CME certificate if you get audited. And our lecture series will meet that. And we have about, so we'll have this online over Zoom and also recorded. So you can access this for the next four years so that we can get every cycle of prescribers within this time. So these are the modules uh, you will be uh, able to uh, access. And the first one today, and Dr. Allison Rock will go in detail about the whole opioid background and management. And after that, we'll have some of the uh, changing bias in substance abuse treatment by Dr. Prasad and Dr. Huntley. These are our two psychiatry physicians and leaders. They will go over those with you. We'll have a pharmacokinetics and pain management lecture by Dr. Dina Dutta and Dr. Allison, Alex Schnibben. We also have a substance abuse and alcohol withdrawal syndrome lecture by Dr. Singh. And then we'll cover the critical care aspect, critical care management of opioid overdose by Dr. Ken Zublitsky, who's our medical director for the critical care program. Then we'll talk about recovery by Dr. Armstrong and Dr. Miles, who are the medical directors of our inpatient psychiatry. Maternal health will be covered by Dr. Yagan Dawale and Dr. Parker. And then we'll have two lectures on smart prescribing in opioid chronic management by Dr. Alex Schnibben. Finally, we'll wrap it up with a panel addressing the legal, ethical, and compliance aspect of opioid management. If time allows, we are in debate, we may consider inviting some legislative bodies and have a town hall at the end, but that's in discussion and depending on attendance. If you complete eight of this 10, you will have your certificate and you will be able to meet your requirement. Without further ado, I am the opener here and I am going to invite Dr. Alison Rock. She's a rising star within our emergency department. Thank you so much, Dr. Rock. Thank you, Dr. Yusuf. Thank you, everyone. I'm really excited to be talking about opiate use disorder. This is something I'm really passionate about. Uh, before medical school, working in a detox facility and then in my residency, got a little bit involved with this. And then throughout my five years here in Northeast Georgia, I have been working closely with our leadership and Dr. Duncan in specific to get the PACE accreditation. We are one of nine hospitals in the nation with a level one gold accreditation through ASEP. And um, it really comes to highlight that our emergency, our emergency department does state-of-the-art care for addiction care and opioid use disorder. So opioid use disorder is in our city. Fentanyl, multiple uh, on the news all the time. There's fentanyl in our area. And most of what I am seeing and what our colleagues are seeing is fentanyl. Now, I'm gonna briefly talk about the background and specifically how it affects our area. And then in particular, what protocols are to treat opioid use disorder, essentially from an outpatient type, uh, you know, they come to the ER and then we discharge them. And how do we do that in a in an evidence-based manner. 
The mortality for someone who comes to the emergency department after an overdose is extremely high. It's approximately 5.4%. They essentially, this study is one that was um, published in JAMA. They looked at patients that left AMA that were just overall ED patients and then patients that left from an overdose. And then they compared their mortality and the mortality for someone who leaves after an overdose is approximately 5%. That's really high when you consider that these patients in general are Patients that are in their 30s, they're very young, they have a whole lot ahead of them, and they have an extremely high mortality. And the other point to mention from this study is that the majority of the deaths that occur after an overdose will occur very soon after the ER visit. So it is very important for us to be initiating treatment as soon as possible. This is the, does anyone know what this is? The Michigan uh, Stadium football stadium. It has over 100,000 people. And I put this picture here because that's approximately the number of people that die in our country every year from opiate overdoses. It's a huge number, and it's going up every single year in a very, very rapid manner. Now it is more, and it's been for many years now, more than the combined deaths from both accidents and firearms. And it is primarily dominated by the fentanyl crisis. So Dr. Yusuf mentioned this briefly, but I'll just highlight here that a lot of what I hear from providers is that they're concerned about prescribing buprenorphine, but we need to remember that the opioid overdose is now dominated by synthetic illegal drugs, and it's not so much from partial agonists. Nowhere here do you see buprenorphine as one of the um, leading causes of the overdoses. It is fentanyl almost, and it's entirely at 80,000 deaths from fentanyl um, of the 100,000 that are occurring in our year in 2021. In the state of uh, Georgia, particularly in North Georgia, this mentions just briefly the distribution. And again, you see fentanyl here in black has the very last of 2021, and you see how it is overwhelmingly dominating in the cause of odor, overdoses. And so the CDC, obviously, this is a crisis, this is an epidemic. What do we need to do? And I have four guidelines. They're saying we need to be giving Narcan, and we need to be doing a lot of education that there is treatment that's effective. We also need to be initiating treatment and we need to be doing it early when they're highest risk. That is patients that just overdose, for example, those patients need to be initiated on treatment as soon as possible. And then if there's an outbreak, which occasionally, like for example, in the emergency department, I may go a month and not have an overdose. And then one string of shift, I'll, I'll see six overdoses. And so like occasionally there are outbreaks where there is a really strong substance in a community and this is going to increase our chances of having deaths. This is just mentioning our pain and addiction care in our emergency department and what we do essentially here. So we have a case here. We have a 25-year-old. This is a very common situation in our ER. A 25-year-old with arm pain. He comes here. This is his arm. This is his other arm. What's the next question other than... Clearly, he has an abscess. What else? Do you use IV drugs? He's got track marks all over this arm. Um, this is not a frequent area where people get abscesses from unless they're doing IV drugs. And so a discussion, the first point of the CDC, not going to overdose prevention education. So it seems bizarre, but we should be talking about harm reduction. So one of the things that we talk with patients is where are they on that spectrum of being interested in care for their addiction. And if they're not interested, and even if they are interested, talking about how to safely 
prevent overdose. So talking with them, talking with their families, talking with their friends, whoever's in the room, if, you know, asking permission and talking about it and specifically how to recognize that someone has overdosed because it's very common for people to not necessarily know that someone has overdosed. It's very common for people to say, well, I thought he was just sleeping and now he's been essentially hypoxic and agonal for a very long time. And now he has like ischemic brain injury by the time they get to us and, and the damage is irreversible. So talking with them about administering Narcan and how to recognize it. And then I also, we, we can actually tell them to get fentanyl test strips. They sell them at Walmart. You can test whatever, let's say, you know, because I got a lot of what they buy is not oxycodone from a, from a doctor that prescribed them. It's fentanyl that they buy on the street or they think they're buying oxys and they're getting fentanyl with it. So they can actually test when they're preparing their drugs to inject them, they can actually test it and you can buy a fentanyl test strip on your friendly Walmart and check if there's fentanyl in there. You also should tell them to use a buddy so that let's say that they are about to use, if there's someone there with them, they can check on them to make sure that they don't require Narcan and to do a tester shot. And I'll talk about this briefly in, in the next one. So essentially you tell them how to, I mean, many of these patients already know how to do it, but like tell them in a way that it's a little bit less likely to cause an overdose. And so um, doing a tester shot so that like, if you're using something that's new and you don't know if it has fentanyl or what amount of fentanyl it has to do a small amount first. And then that way, you know how potent the effect is. There are needle changes in Georgia. There are none in this particular Gainesville area. The closest one is probably in Athens access point, but there are several in Atlanta and there is one in Athens. And so referring them there so that they can get clean needles so they don't get hepatitis, HIV, and you know, they don't spread it. Motivational interviewing. So how to approach a patient. A lot of times, let's say that patient comes in and they have, you know, the large abscess and obviously you're going to need to drain that abscess. And the first thing is establishing rapport in a brief negotiated interview. So at that moment, a lot of times they're very hesitant. They've gotten a lot of negative experience when they encounter the healthcare team. And so talking with them just as another human, um, asking them a little bit about themselves. And that's kind of where you establish the report. And you, you, you know, oftentimes they'll mention like, oh, I got this because I, I know I need to stop or I'm not interested in stopping. Don't even talk to me about that. I'm not interested in it. You kind of just gauge where they're at. And at one point, it's helpful to ask how interested you are from one to 10 in quitting. And then let's say they say three, for example, and then you might say, what made you not choose one? And then you can kind of go into, oh, well, I have a son or I am trying to get back to work and, and then trying to see if you can negotiate. Maybe they'd be interested in starting something sooner because they may be like, oh, well, you know, I really, that really does matter to me. And if they don't want to get in, in any treatment, that's okay. You really don't want to. Um, be confrontational. You want to leave that door open and they can always come back. So, you know, leaving that door open that you're not angry at them, that you're wanting to help. And that if they change their mind, they can always come back and just focusing on the harm reduction portion of it, even if they're not interested in the treatment of, of it with medications or, you know, doing the other things that I'll talk about briefly, which are peer counseling and behavioral health. You can still do other things, even if they don't want to do the medications. So recovery, what does that mean? It, it, it doesn't mean being opioid naive. It just means that they are 
ability to have a self-directed life. That's the definition by SAMHSA, which is essentially like the main driver of this in the nation for substance use disorder. So, you know, that they are not in, under the control of a drug, that they can direct their own life. And we have a great partnership with the Georgia Council of Recovery. They, we have peer recovery coaches that come to NICU, that come to the emergency department, that come inpatient, and they will sit and talk with the patient and, and they do a great job with the motivational interview. So I'll do a very, very brief part of it, but then essentially I try to get them involved or at least refer them over the phone. And you can do that. We have it in our phones their number there, and you can also leave a message in their uh, secure voicemail, and they will reach out to the patient, and they will help in all sorts of things. They'll help the patient with housing. They'll help with the patient with transportation to appointments. They'll just talk with the patient because they typically, I mean, this is, these are pay, uh, providers that have, have lived that shared experience of struggling with substance use, so they know what it's like, and it's very different than me telling them to you know, stop using drugs than someone who's actually lived that and experienced how difficult it can be. So this is the number, it's in our, in our phones here in Northeast Georgia. And so the main medication and, and, and evidence base for treatment now is medications for opioid use disorder. So a map here. And medications for opioid use disorder are the guideline recommendation by the CDC and almost by every major national society there are multiple, there's methadones, there's Suboxone, and there's Vivitrol. And they really no longer recommend detox. And the reason they don't recommend detox is because when a patient who is using narcotics all the time stops using it and then they relapse and use, they're very, very high, highly likely to overdose. And so that doesn't actually prevent death to use the other form, whereas medications for opioid use disorder have been shown to reduce multiple things. Not only does it actually reduce the chance of them overdosing and dying, but it also reduces bloodborne viruses, bacterial infections, drug-related crime, and heroin and other drug use. So it, it is a very big game changer for treatment of this condition. And for us in particular in the emergency department and what we do inpatient now is buprenorphine. And it's very cheap, actually. A lot of these patients are using anywhere between $25 to $100 a day on, on drugs, depending on what they use. And this is 150 a month for the film or 20 for the tablets. So very affordable for someone that may be struggling now on the economic side. And just to briefly talk about what its kinetics are. So buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So the respiratory depression that occurs with methadone and with the full agonist like oxycodone is just not described here. It may cause a little bit of sedation, but typically it doesn't. And it doesn't typically cause respiratory depression. It has a ceiling effect. So it's very safe. But with that, it also can cause precipitated withdrawal. So we have to be very careful about who we give it to, because if we give it to a patient that's not ready for it, they may start withdrawing and then never want to do it again. And that would obviously not help the patient in the long run. There's lots of studies. This is a study from JAMA. It's one of the big ones in terms of showing that benefit. So in this study, they essentially plotted for treatment, different forms of treatment for opioid use disorder. They, they showed no treatment, one of the reference there. And then they did intention uh, detox, outpatient treatment, behavioral health other. And then they just kind of plotted, okay, what's the chance at three months and at 12 months of patients dying from an overdose? And you can see that the only one that actually showed significant 
significance with a confidence in interval of 0.14 to 0.41 was the medication for opiate use disorder. So this one, medication for opiate use disorder, reduced it 24%. Your, your chance is about 76% lower than no treatment in preventing overdose. It's very big. And this is for patients that actually overdose. So these are extremely high-risk patients because we already know that their mortality is about 5% plus. Um, this it showed, this is a different study, it showed 0.63 hazard ratio. So again, reduced it about 37%. Um, so significant change here. And that's, again, the only one that showed significance. So against behavioral health only, detox options, no treatment, the only modality that showed improvement in mortality is medications for opioid use disorder. So again, this is why the CDC is saying detox alone is not recommended. This is why the standard of care is medications for opioid use disorder, and that is buprenorphine and methadone and Vivitrol. There are absolute contraindications to starting uh, buprenorphine. So if a patient comes in and they're multi-trauma, multi they're not a candidate for buprenorphine, even if they overdose, and that's why they were in the MVC. They're going to require a large surgery. They're going to require a lot of narcotics. They're not a candidate for buprenorphine. Their critical illness, again, typically not recommended because it's going to be a partial agonist. It's going to affect their ability to treat their pain. Not really the great patient. And their recent significant methadone use. Those are kind of the big ones that where it's not like it's a kind of a no-no. Precautions, if they can't consent, that's not a good patient. If the patient has chronic pain, because they have cancer pain, sickle cell pain, this is a partial agonist. So it's going to be very difficult to treat their pain. Sometimes you can give it several times a day to treat pain. So someone who uses your printer friend has a small fracture, you may be able to, instead of giving it once a day, give it twice a day, or even give it three times a day, and you may be able to get some pain control with that. But in general, if they have some really severely painful condition like uh, sickle cell or, or cancer pain, it's probably not going to be your choice, although you may use it and then just add additional narcotic on top of it, but typically not what an ER provider or hospitalist would, would typically be doing. They have polysubstance, they use some caution in, in that because if they're using benzos, that's typically going to be a patient that's going to have to go through detox for the benzo part, so not typically something we, we'd be doing. Pregnancy and pediatrics, I put caution there just because it's not full. There are some FDA warnings for it, but... Um, we, we still can use it in pregnancy and pediatrics, and it is recommended for both of those populations. Elderly, I'll talk about that briefly, and then severe liver disease. So for adult consent in pediatrics, I have had patients as young as, I think the youngest I've had is 14 um, in the ER, and that was actually pretty recent. And at, for, for those patients, you actually don't need the parent to consent. You can actually start them on treatment if you choose. However, buprenorphine is only FDA approved in 16 or older, and methadone is only approved for 18 and older. And so typically speaking, if they're less than that, I, I may have a little bit more of a conversation about maybe trying some other modalities. And it's kind of rare for a 14-year-old to be truly opioid use disorder that's um, not, thankfully not a really common situation. Pregnancy, there are some, so buprenorphine typically comes in the form of naloxone, and so it comes in a combination, and it does have a category C for, uh, for the you know, approval of it because it can cross the placenta. So typically, if we do use um, buprenorphine, we're going to use the buprenorphine only, the subutex, and we're not going to use the combination. 
And here at Northeast Georgia, I have spoken with Dr. Armstrong. I know he's going to be giving some lectures later, but we actually now um, have the possibility of admitting patients, especially those with viable pregnancies, into our psychiatric uh, team for buprenorphine induction. There are lots of other hospitals that actually admit these patients. Typically, we discharge them. So we induce them in the emergency department, and then they get discharged and they do well. But for pregnant patients, they are just such high risk. And we are now having that option where we can admit them for induction here to monitor the baby. It's not necessarily that it's, that it's needed to monitor the baby. It's just that, there are, that the stakes are so, so high. Um, and the benefit is significant in pregnant women as well. And it is not contraindicated to breastfeed if you are on either one of these medications. So you can still encourage them to breastfeed, which is great. Elderly, the main one is with methadone, it does cause QT prolongation. In the ER, we're not really doing methadone, but um, that is something to consider because they're going to be a much higher risk of having cardiac complications and overdosing because of its long-lasting effects. So typically, buprenorphine we consider safer, and that's why once you have this DEA, uh, well, now you already can do it, but because of this new change where you don't need the special uh, prescribing privileges. Now, any provider with a DEA can prescribe buprenorphine. It doesn't matter if you're an orthopedist doctor or if you're an ER doctor or any kind of doctor. So our protocol here is uh, live for medications for opioid use disorder. We only do buprenorphine, although we can give one-time doses of methadone. Typically, if a patient, let's say, is a methadone patient and they have missed their methadone, uh, I try to call the, the clinic to confirm, but if I cannot call the clinic. It used to be that we were not supposed to give methadone. We weren't supposed to give, we actually had like a pamphlet that said we don't give methadone, but actually that is no longer recommended because when a patient stops using methadone and they're acutely withdrawing, then their chances of going and buying an illicit substance that has fentanyl is extremely high. And then they're much more likely to overdose. And so now it is recommended to give them, ideally you'd call the clinic first and find out if you can't and it's been 24 hours or less, typically that's, you know, it's long lasting. So it's okay to tell them to go to their clinic. But if it's been more than that and they have objective signs of withdrawal, then you can give them a small dose. Usually you don't give them the full dose, but you can give them like a 10 IM shot or a 20 PO and just that will get them kind of to their clinic on the next day appointment. And it avoids them hopefully going and overdosing by buying some fentanyl on the street. So our traditional MOUD protocol is the Zaboxone. Uh, we just use the buprenorphine in the ER. So when we discharge them, we give them the combination typically. And that's pretty standard of care. And the reason is because you're actually not going to... So a lot of patients will think, oh, if I take the, the Suboxone, because it's a combination, it's going to make me withdraw. And when you take it, you actually take it orally and you don't swallow it. You let it sit in your mouth and dissolve in your mucosa because it doesn't get uh, metabolized in, in your in your stomach if you swallow it. And so it does have a combination ingredient, essentially Narcan in it, um, that only gets uh, active if you inject it. And the whole purpose of putting that there is because if a patient, let's say, is crushing their buprenorphine and it has uh, no second uh, additive in it, then they can potentially get high on it. It is only a partial agonist, but if you have that combination there, it will prevent them from getting high on it and, and hence less likely to, to be used recreationally. So in the ER, because we're actually visualizing them consuming the drug, we're not really worried about diversion. 
And so we just give them the subutex. It's a lot cheaper. We give them the sublingual and they start with an eight. And we do a cow score, which is the standard of checking someone for their withdrawal symptoms. And some of it is somewhat subjective. So sometimes you'll go into the room and the patient is clearly withdrawing, but it's not always, um, sometimes I'll, I'll get a lot of variability. Like the nurse will tell me, well, they're only at two. Um, and then I'll go and do it and it's much higher or the opposite. You know, the patient says, I'm like, I'm dying, I'm withdrawing. And yet they don't really have a lot of objective signs of it. And so you have to exercise some caution because especially if it's someone who's used methadone or used one of the longer acting, if you give them the medication before it's time, then you have to be very clear that there is a chance of them withdrawing worse. So they'll precipitate their withdrawal because it's a partial agonist. And the way that buprenorphine works is that it binds very, very tightly to that mu receptor, much more tightly than the full agonist. So if you still have full agonist, you'll actually feel a lot worse. And so to remember, if you have a cause of eight, you start with eight. So pretty easy. But it's not that simple because what if the patient's cow is an eight? And the other thing is there are certain populations that are slightly higher risk of withdrawing. So if they don't have a cows of eight, you have a couple of options. You can keep them in the ER. Let's say they're at seven. I mean, that's not that far. So you can, you can kind of wait a little bit and see if we get them to eight and you can um, wait a couple of hours. But if they're really far from that, like they're actively intoxicated, for example then that doesn't mean you can't start the non-buprenorphine. You can still refer them. But if you refer them somewhere, let's say you refer them to our partner Medlink, um, they may not be seen for a week. Like Gainesville, they only see patients once a week. So they may have not have the transportation to drive all the way to Habersham. They may not be able to get an appointment in some of the other local clinics here. So it is really helpful. Again, the CDC recommendation of starting that treatment as soon as possible is to, if you're not going to wait for them to start withdrawing, then you actually give them a pamphlet on how to self-induce at home. This is from Yale University. This is what they use in their ERs and give them a prescription and they can actually kind of, and this is again from the Yale University. If you, if you go into their website, you can find how to initiate buprenorphine on their website. And you give them this pamphlet and you tell them when you have these symptoms and it's been this long since your last youth, you can start eight to 12 buprenorphine and the, on day two, you're going to start 16. And then they can do it at home. And a lot of clinics actually do this. Even let's say that a patient walks in and they're not yet ready to start the, the protocol. They'll give them this. It's very safe to do this at home. Um, I mean, there are some places, emergency departments that go even beyond 30 milligrams of buprenorphine and that even that's been considered safe. So starting them on an eight is a very small dose. And when you consider that these patients are using fentanyl and that they have an over 5% mortality at one year after an overdose, and starting them on buprenorphine, which has a ceiling for their respiratory depression and for their, um, you know, just mental depression, this is very, very safe. So populations at higher risk of withdrawal, there are certain populations where it's going to be a little bit harder to just start them on that eight. And those are patients that just overdosed because you don't know how long that, that Narcan is only going to work about an hour or so. And then additionally, a lot of times you don't know what they actually use. You don't know if they use methadone, what was in the pill that they ingested. Long acting opioid prescriptions, oxycodone ER, methadone, and fentanyl users. And the reason for the fentanyl is that because fentanyl tends to 
store in your fat. So a lot of times patients will say, I have not used fentanyl in 24 hours and I feel absolutely terrible and I really need you to help me. But when you actually give them, and this has happened multiple times to me when I was doing just the eight milligram um, protocol, it, they would still feel really bad and I couldn't really get them comfortable. And it's because the fentanyl tends to store in their fat. And if they're really high users, they'll have it continuing to release. And so they don't have complete suppression of all their receptors. Methadone is a little bit trickier as well because it has a really long half-life. And so if a patient's a high dose user of methadone, let's say they're taking 100 plus methadone, even if it's been you know, 48 hours, they may still withdraw. And usually we say for methadone, they have to be completely out. Methadone has to be completely out of their system for at least three days, 48 to 72 hours typically. But even at, I've had patients that come in and they've been off the methadone, methadone for a week. And when I give them Suboxone, they still feel really, really bad. Maybe not quite as bad as before, but they still like, they don't feel comfortable. They're still withdrawing and it. Uh, it can be kind of hard when a patient's been on it for a really, really long time. So methadone in particular, if you can, it's preferred to do a really, really long taper. So like you reduce it by 10% over the course of weeks, 10% every few weeks until you get to the point that you're about 30 milligrams. And then when you get to 30 milligrams, then you, you know, you do that for a couple of weeks and then you stop for 24 hours and then you start Suboxone. But then when you start Suboxone, this is the patient that I typically start at a higher dose. So those patients, essentially there's three of them. The patient that just got Narcan for overdose, the fentanyl user, the, the pill is supposed to be fentanyl, and then the long acting users, oxycodone, methadone. Those patients typically, even let's say the methadone has been off for the 24 hours or the 72 hours and you did the taper, you still may struggle with getting them comfortable. And I don't want the patient to not and not be induced in the treatment because I know their mortality is going to be much better. And some patients don't want to be on methadone because they get tired of going to the clinic all the time. It can be really disruptive to their lifestyle and buprenorphin is as effective. So, um, and I usually, again, I'm not tapering them in the ER, but um, there are patients that self taper at home and then they come to our ER. So what do we do if we have a patient that's a really high risk of precipitated withdrawal? So that's a patient that I'm going to start at, this is a sweet 16 patient. This is a uh, patient I'm starting on the 16 milligram. So again, just talking about what we talked earlier. So if we have a patient that has nothing but fentanyl, so the blue here represents your mu receptor, the red is the fentanyl, they're binding tightly. But we talked about how reprenorphine, even though it's a partial agonist, it binds much more tightly to the mu receptor. And so the moment that you give buprenorphine, which is the green here, it's going to displace the fentanyl. And because it's only going to give you part of the agonism, it doesn't cause that euphoria. It just kind of helps you from that withdrawal. You're going to feel pretty crummy if you're used to feeling the fentanyl in your system. And so when you actually give them a higher dose of the buprenorphine, not only will you displace the fentanyl, but you will also bind to the rest of the receptors and it'll help them not feel as bad. There are multiple protocols talking about safety here, multiple protocols where they've actually shown as an outpatient, they gave 60 milligrams and the patients did very well. So this was one where they actually did it through EMS. The EMS providers gave buprenorphine. They would come to a patient, the patient had overdose, they gave Narcan, and then the patient woke up, they would consent them and they would initiate them on buprenorphine. And they did very well. None of them had precipitated withdrawal and none of them had any bad adverse effects. Um, anecdotally, I have also not had anyone have a bad effect on the 16 milligram 
or the 18 or the eight milligram. And I have given up to 24 milligrams in the ER. This is another, um, another study also, I believe this was in JAMA where essentially they went up on doses and they did up to 32 milligrams um, for buprenorphine with very good outcomes. So again, just kind of talking about that you start at the eight mil, usually you start at the eight milligram. If it's a high risk to precipitated withdrawal, you may start at the 16, but then you can continue to go up. And typically some studies will say, even at every 10 minutes, I typically will do like every 30 to one hour, I'll redose. And you can dose up to 32. Our protocol here that we're building for the new protocol is supposed to go up to 24 milligrams. So it has a little bit of a, of a safety barrier there, guardrail. But in general, studies are showing that there's safety up to 32. And I was just speaking with our ED pharmacist recently, and she was saying even in her um, community in, in pharmacy that they're advocating also for very high doses of buprenorphine with safety. So this is the new protocol that's going live soon. This one is the one that starts at 16 for those kind of high-risk patients. And essentially, you can start even at a lower cow's score for those patients because you are trying to overcome. And so even if they're not completely deplete of the fentanyl or whatever their drug choice is, you can overcome it with that 16 milligram. So this allows you to go even lower on the cough score, but also um, in a safe manner. So you would start at, you, you can start as low as a five. You as a provider can decide whether you want to wait for the eight, which is the more traditional, but you can start at a slightly lower cows and you just start at a higher buprenorphine. And this is what I recommend for overdoses, which are, again, mostly fentanyl users. And that's why the ER is changing its, its practice because we're just dealing with so much fentanyl. And then if they continue to feel pretty bad, you can give them another dose of eight milligrams up to 24, essentially. And so let's say you successfully treated the patient. You saw this patient that had an abscess. You treated their abscess. You had a conversation with them. They did actually want to start the MOUD. In this patient, you might actually... Um, depending on if they're actually intoxicated or not, you may either start it in the ER or you may refer them to a clinic and give them still a prescription. And then that sheet from Yale where they can initiate it at home. Um, there's several options depending on what the patient's cop score is essentially. But at one point, you're going to get to the point where you're ready to discharge the patient as long as they're not suicidal and they don't have you know, endocarditis or some other um, issue that you're worried about. And so we have uh, ED, opioid use disorder, MAT discharge, Set. And I think, you know, this is from the ER, but it could be applied to many other settings. And so you click and we have, essentially we give every patient Narcan. We have a program, it's now funded by the hospital, but every patient gets a Narcan kit. Um, now you can actually buy them over the counter. It was FDA approved back in March or so, but it's not re readily available in most pharmacies. Um, but you can buy it over the counter now. So patients can, but there's a lot of barriers. I've done actually studies where they've seen our patients likely to feel like, let's say you give them a prescription for Suboxone, which is obviously not the same, but you know, will the patient go and pick up a prescription? And they've seen that they hardly ever pick them up. But I think it's just very difficult to go to a pharmacy and buy that. So um, the ER is, I will say, in general, patients like to get their care in comprehensive settings where they do everything. And, and so if you show that you are you know, inviting to treat opioid use disorder, then they, they are more likely to prefer that setting. And so they don't like to go to a pharmacy where people might judge them. Um, they prefer to just get it at the point of care. So we give it at the point, it saves lives, we give it at the point of care. 
We give it to every patient that overdosed. And a lot of times if we have a, a high-risk patient, we'll also give it to them. And then we usually actually in Gainesville give them several days of free buprenorphine for three days. And then after that, we give them a prescription to bridge them to their clinic at MedLink, who is a partner for Northeast York. Um, and you can choose different modalities. So um, there are different ways you could give it. You could give just the Suboxone and give it as a film, which is the most expensive one. It's about 150 with a good RX for a month. But again, that's not that expensive. It tastes a little bit less nasty. Um, if they have like dentures, they may not like it. But in general, it's, it's a little bit uh, more palatable for patients. So if they can afford that film, it's better. Again, it goes in the, in the mouth and they don't, it just, it's just allowed to dissolve. But if they, let's say, can't afford that, then you can just give them the same thing, but just give it in a tablet. And again, they put it in their mouth and they let it dissolve. And that was a little bit cheaper. It's about 60 bucks uh, for a month. And then you can also give them the non-combination. You can just give them the buprenorphine. The it used to be that we thought that, you know, it did a ton to help the patient from injecting if we gave the combination product. That has not been shown to be that accurate, but we, it's still pretty much standard of care. But let's say it's a pregnant woman or you just feel like this patient is a good candidate to at least trial that um, or, or the economics are just so much in, in their disadvantage that you can give the cheapest form, which is the, the buprenorphine tablet. So it doesn't have that Narcan component in it. And you just give, uh, you give them their tablet and it's $20 a month. So that's very affordable. And these are the resources that we typically give for follow-up. MedLink is a great partner for us. They will see them. They usually try to actually fit them into their clinic on next day or within three days. But long-term, they only see patients once a week, typically, in the Gainesville. Uh, we also have Jeffrey Dallas Gay Recovery in our center, which is a great resource. I've spoken with them. They have told me they will help patients go and get, like, employment. They will help them get to their, their appointments. I mean, obviously, the peer recovery is the other resource that I try to either get them to come see them in the ER or call, give their number and the information to the patient with the patient's permission. And then the patient can always talk with them uh, at a later time. And that's a resource that most people, even an outpatient, could refer them to. And these are the kind of offices and numbers that we have. We give them a discharge patient pamphlet. We talked about all these things, the needle exchanges, the harm reduction, and gives them all this information, which is really important to talk about because even if a patient does get induced into buprenorphine, they may, like any other chronic disease, have a moment where they relapse. And so talking again about the importance of doing these harm reduction pathways is really important to save lives. And this is essentially the test uh, strips for fentanyl. Um, if you have two lines, there's no fentanyl. If you just have one, it's fentanyl. And essentially that's the end of my talk. Just big highlights are opioid use disorder is killing more Americans than any other drug. It is an epidemic. The CDC wants us to start treatment and they want us to start treatment soon. And uh, patients after an overdose are at higher risk of dying at about 5% chance at 12 months. And if we start medications for opioid use disorder, that is the most effective and evidence-based manner of having patients in recovery. And we can start it at point of care in the ER or really in any other setting, it's very safe. So with that, does anyone have any questions? Thank you, Dr. Ruck. I did forget to mention, if you're viewing online and have a question, you can enter it in the Q&A chat and we'll um, 
ask the question for you, but in the room, oh yes, down here. Oh. Hi, Dr. Rock. First, I just wanted to say thank you so much for the talk. It was very, um, very enlightening. Learned a lot. Uh, my question is, how would you combat some of the rhetoric that some of the harm reduction procedures are actually enabling patients to use? Because I know that sometimes that kind of comes up with topics such as this. Yeah, I think to me, the analogy is with suicidality. It used to be that patients, that providers thought, well, if I ask them if they're thinking about killing themselves, then they're going to go and do it. And the research has just shown that that's not the case. That it's really important actually to ask people, have you thought about killing yourself? Um, in order to identify and prevent suicidality and, and uh, attempts. And so I think it's the same thing. It, is, it, it seems like it would be common sense that these things may enable, but when they've actually studied it, it just isn't the case because these patients are already, this isn't, we're not talking about patients that used a pill one time. We're talking about someone who's injecting every day. And that's the patient that I spend the time talking about these things. Obviously, there may be people that talk about it even sooner than that. Uh, I'm not going to a high school and talking about how to inject fentanyl safely. I'm talking with a patient that's already engaging in that extremely high-risk behavior and talking to them about how to do it safely so that they don't get HIV, they don't get hepatitis, they don't overdose, and... Um, kind of going from there. So I, I feel like the population is really different and it's really important to just know who you are targeting. And we're not targeting a patient that's opioid naive. We're, we're targeting a patient that is addicted to this drug and is using every day in a very high risk situation whose mortality is extremely high and whose chances of acquiring HIV and hepatitis C is extremely high as well. And people that are really young, people that are in their thirties and have kids and have parents and have their whole life ahead of them, if you could just get them on this treatment, they would actually have a chance. Okay, Dr. Ruck, where do you refer your adolescent patient after treatment in the emergency department? So the last, I don't really have a good answer for that. Um, the few that I have had, I have not started on buprenorphine and I have actually consulted behavioral and brought them in for detox. And the reason is because none of them were really, really high dose users. Um, so every single one of those that I have had, I have worked in collaboration with psychiatry. I have never made a decision completely on my own. I think if it was someone that was, you know, a young adult, 18, 17, Medlink has said that they will take care of those patients. Um, but if it's like a really young 14, 13, those patients, I usually work in collaboration with psychiatry. I have not discharge them because I, I worry that they may not be able to get the care that they need. And I really want them to get care quickly. But in general, I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends treatment with MOUD in pediatric patients as well. So um, it's just that it's not FDA approved in 16 or older. So I have just always worked in collaboration with psychiatry. I don't really have a pathway because it's so rare. It's kind of like, what do we do with stroke patients that are pregnant? We don't necessarily always have like a, you know, do we get an MRI and everything? It's just, we don't really have a clear pathway that's, this is what we always do with those patients. So. All right. Thank you, Dr. Rock. Excellent. Yeah, everyone.